I like passages like this one because they're what I call cloud-parting passages. And what I mean by that is that stories such as we find here in Judges 14 through 15, with all of its intrigue and sin and irony, can be likened to thick, dark storm clouds that seem to hover over every verse of the text. But in passages like this, every so often we see those clouds pull back just a little bit and we behold the God who's behind that storm. The one who is sitting enthroned, overseeing it all and constructing it all and managing it all for his higher purposes. Last week, we looked at chapter 14, especially verse 4, and we saw that that verse is the key to the entire Samson narrative, as it informs us that the events that brought about this whole story were from the Lord, it says, that God had brought it all about because he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines that he might deliver his people from their grip. And if you recall last week, I asked a question. If Samson indeed chose a Gentile idol-worshiping wife out of sinful lust, how can verse 4 say that this sin of Samson was from the Lord? And I asked, is sin then from God? And hopefully you recall the answer that I took all of my last sermon to provide, that all things, even sin, are ordained, guided, and governed by God, the creator and sustainer of everything, who ordained that even evil occur for the greater good of his perfect will. If you weren't here, you can hear it on our website. So, even the storm with all of its dark clouds and its cold rain, with all of its rejection of God's kingship and its sin, are part of his ordained plan as he works through it to bring about something ultimately glorious. And throughout the rest of chapters 14 and 15, as we just heard read, we see these clouds through Samson and the Philistines and even the wimpiness of the people of Israel. But we also see from time to time in these two chapters, these clouds part and we witness the sovereign God above all conducting his plan to deliver his chosen ones. Chapter 14, verse 4, it was from the Lord Chapter 14, verse 6, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon Samson. Chapter 14, verse 19, again, the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. Chapter 15, verse 14, then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. And then at the very end, chapter 15, verse 19, God splits open the rock and he gives him drink. Again and again, we see that behind it all, there stands God. 
As Dale Ralph Davis writes in his excellent and humorous commentary on this book of Judges, he says, Yahweh can and will use the sinfulness or stupidity of his servants as the camouflage for bringing his secret will to pass. And we get to see this again this morning. Today I want you to see the gracious God who's behind the scenes. I want you to behold the loving, patient Lord who is behind the curtain, who is managing the whole production that we might see its fabulous conclusion. Who, for the purpose of his glory, is working on behalf of his people in ways that we don't always get to fully see. And that this should be supremely comforting and motivating for those of us who can say, I am a child of this God And that it should be a present and clear call to everyone else who comes here today as they should cry out and say, I need to be a child of this God. Now as we look to the text, notice with me that the skies are cloudy over this man Samson. This is not a good picture we see of him. Number one, he demonstrated a no-king kind of attitude. Daniel Block writes a scathing indictment of Samson when he says, quote, Unlike the other deliverers, he never seeks to rid Israel of foreign oppressors, and he never calls out the Israelite troops. Samson is a man with a higher calling than any other deliverer in the book, but spends his whole life doing his own thing, end quote. And this can be seen right from the get-go. From verse 1 of chapter 14, we see that Samson is a man who's driven by his eyes. And I'm not just talking about his physical eyes, though that's certainly true, but also the eyes of his sinful heart. He is driven by his desires to please himself, to please his flesh, to avenge himself even whenever he is wronged. In verse 3, he says to his dad regarding this Philistine woman that he wanted to marry against God's law, get her for me because she's right in my eyes. He sees what he wants, he wants what he wants, and he has determined that what he wants is right. He has self-determined what is best for him. Sounds like my own heart so often, sadly. And all of this is superb writing by the author of Judges. Because it foreshadows the conclusion of the book and the ultimate point that he's trying to get all of us to. I want you to look with me. Hold your hand here at chapter 14. But look at chapter 17, verse 6. Chapter 17, verse 6, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Look at chapter 19, verse 1. In those days, there was no king in Israel. 
And then look at the very end of this book. In fact, the very last verse of this book, chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. My friends, these are weighty words, and they are meant for the effect that I'm praying it's having upon your minds and hearts right now. At the end of this book, we see the ultimate issue with God's people Israel. They did not want God to be their king. They did not want his authority over their lives, their families, or their nation. Instead, they wanted to do whatever they wanted to do. They wanted to be free from all of their perceived constraints, not recognizing that God's reign is one of true joy and freedom. Samson's greatest problem in chapter 14 and 15 was his no king for me attitude. The same attitude shared by most of his paganized people at that time. But as verse 4 tells us of chapter 14, as it pulls back those dark clouds just for an instance, it says, this was from the Lord. God had ordained it, and he was about to use it for his purpose. Secondly, regarding these storm clouds that Samson brings to this text, notice how he disregarded his calling Samson was a man who was called by God to be a Nazarite. This was a special calling that God had given to him. Usually people took Nazarite oaths only for a certain limited time. But God, if you recall from chapter 13 a couple of weeks ago, had called Samson to this life even from the womb. And this holy calling was to be his throughout the entirety of his days on this earth. Now the full explanation, as I've mentioned before, of what it meant to be a Nazarite can be found in the book of Numbers chapter 6. And there, God provides a way for the people of Israel, out of love and praise for God, to set themselves apart in certain ways that they might especially bring him honor. In many ways, I think a Nazarite commitment feels similar to a fast in that it was the giving up of certain privileges to express a greater appreciation for God. Well, these individuals who made the Nazarite oath or who were called to be lifelong Nazarites from the womb like Samson, they were to separate themselves to the Lord. And Numbers chapter 6 really gives three specific areas in which they were supposed to do this. They were, first of all, not to drink wine or strong drink during their time as a Nazarite. They were to stay clear of it. Secondly, they were not to cut their hair at any point during their time as a Nazarite. And then third, they were not to even go near a dead body, whether that be an animal or a human being, even if the death was of a close loved one. This was a real sacrifice. I don't even like my hair touching my ears, let alone 
going on all my days. This was a real sacrifice. And Samson was to be living this out in his life as God's called out man to deliver his people Israel. But Samson wholly disregarded this calling, expressing no allegiance to his God and to his king. And the author of Judges, as I read this again and again, it just seems like he makes great pains and goes out of his way to show Samson's utter disregard for his Nazarite commitments. In chapter 14, verse 5, we see that Samson went down to Timnah with his dad and his mom to arrange his marriage with this Philistine woman. And it says there that they came to the vineyards of Timnah. Now, what Samson was doing at a vineyard, as one who was to refrain from all wine and strong drink, we can only guess. But I think it presents us a little bit of an early clue regarding his attitude towards his calling. Also, in verse 5, this cloud is rolled back a little bit, and we see the Lord, who's fully sovereign over all, while Samson's in this vineyard, bringing a young lion towards Samson to reveal to him the kind of strength that God had endowed him with through his spirit. Verse 6 says, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, which is essentially saying it came upon him suddenly with great strength. And Samson, he took the lion and he tore it apart in the same way that he could a goat. It was as if it was nothing for him to do this. And Samson, he secretly kept this from his parents. And later, when he came back to the vineyard, it says in verse 8, notice carefully, that he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. Now, this is odd, I think, for a couple of reasons. Number one, why would Samson go back to see the carcass? And I wonder if it was perhaps because he was still in awe over what he had been able to do by the Lord, and because there were no mirrors in that day to admire his great muscles, he perhaps went back to the dead body of the lion to see what he had been able to do. Maybe to gloat. Second, I wonder how could a carcass become a house for bees and their honey? My father-in-law has messed with bees. I don't envy that job. And I know a little bit to know, I know a little bit, just enough to know that that's not the usual domicile for bees to go and have their honey. The rotting, stinking flesh of a lion would not be a place for bees to set up a hive. And yet, God seems to have miraculously brought this about as a test for Samson, one that he clearly fails. Look at verse 9. It says, he scraped it into his hands and went on, eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate. But he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. So he scraped the honey out of the dead carcass of this animal, and he ate it. What's more, keeping the secret, he gives some to his parents who are ignorant of the whole thing. My friends, this is sheer effrontery. This is utter impudence. This is chutzpah. This is a man. This is a man who does not care about his calling. Not only did he not go near a dead, but not only did he go near a dead body, but he has the audacity to eat the food that came out of it and actually give it to other people. 
Furthermore, in verse 10, Samson, he prepared a feast, it says, as the young men used to do in the lead up to his wedding. Now, at first glance, you might think that that doesn't appear anything abnormal, but that word feast usually refers to a drinking party. This is probably something akin to a stag party. Again, this does not explicitly tell us that our Nazarite deliverer was drinking or getting drunk, breaking his commandment, but I do think the implication is there. Samson had no respect for his holy calling, yet even behind this, we see the Lord. Third, as these storm clouds are over the text, we see Samson contrived out of greed. The narrative now comes fully together as Samson's marriage and the event with the lion meet up together with this riddle that he poses. The Philistines, it says, had selected 30 companions to be with Samson in the lead-up to this marriage. Now, one commentator, he argues well, I think, that these companions were probably not something like guests at the feast, but rather they were likely bodyguards that the Philistines put in place to make sure that Samson was held in check. They don't trust him. And Samson, seeking to give himself the finest wardrobe of anybody in the land, posed a riddle to these companions. And if they solved it during the days of the feast, he would give each of them 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if they couldn't, then they would each supply garments to him. Now, some of you guys today are perhaps thinking, I always try to think, okay, what's in the minds of the people? Some of you guys are probably thinking, why would he need 30 sets of clothes? I do just fine in jeans and a t-shirt. But clothes were a major status symbol for men in that day, signifying wealth and power. I think Samson is wanting to put on a display. Well, they agreed to his, his uh, request about the riddle, and here is the impossible riddle that he gave them in verse 14. He said to them, Out of the eater came something sweet, out of the strong came something sweet. Now, the eater is the lion, the strong thing is the lion, something to eat is the honey. Something sweet is the honey. And never in a million years would they guess the answer to Samson's riddle that it was honey from the carcass of a lion. Samson had them good. But Samson had a great fault. The strong man had a tremendous weakness. He could not resist the charms and the prodding of a woman. In verse 15, these Philistine companions blackmailed Samson's wife with a great threat. They say, essentially, get the answer out of your husband or you and your father's house will be burned. These are some guys. These are the kind of guys you want around you during your wedding feast. She, in verse 17, it says, pressed him hard. And eventually, because she pressed him hard on this, told her the meaning of the riddle. And the result was that his plan was blown. Verse 18, the first part says, And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And Samson's response was equally as offensive in that day as it would be to a gal today when he says, If you had not plowed with my heifer, 
you would not have found out my riddle. He calls his wife, future wife, a cow. Samson was acting out of pride and greed, and it ended up coming back all the way upon him. But still, even in this, the Lord is working behind the scenes. Number four, storm clouds are gathering over the text, primarily through Samson, and we see him react with angry vengeance. He is irate over how he had been treated, and he determined to honor his bet by killing and stealing from a different group of Philistines. In verse 19, he goes down to the city of Ashkelon, another Philistine town, and he strikes down 30 of their men. It says he took their spoil, and it says, and he gave the garments to those men who had answered the riddle back in Timnah. So he robs Peter to pay Paul. He goes and takes from them to give to others. And in verse 19, it's clear how he was able to do this. It identifies clearly to us how we see him having such strength. It says the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. There it is again. Samson was not going about the task of delivering Israel out of a love for God. Samson was not going about the task of delivering Israel out of an appreciation for his calling Samson was not going about his task of delivering the people of Israel even out of a concern for his people. He was simply mad, verse 19 tells us, because he was wronged by the Philistines, as that verse says, in hot anger he went back to his father's house. And the Spirit of the Lord God used even this to bring the hand of judgment down upon them. So what does this tell us about people who try to flee from the judgment of God? Well, my friends, please catch this. Under the text, just scrape a little bit and you see it. There is no place where the rebellious sinner, whether they be a Philistine in that day or an American today, can run to avoid the judgment of a holy God. The only place for us to turn is to the Savior Jesus. Now, in chapter 15, some time has passed, and Samson determined, it says, verse 1, at the time of the wheat harvest, and we're going to see the reason why that's significant in a moment, he decides at the time of wheat harvest to visit his wife. But her father would not allow him to have her, for he had given her to one of his companions from the party. Well, that's a bad thing to do. Evidently, he thought that Samson was so angry over the incident with the clothing that he had abandoned her altogether. And the father's proposed solution in verse 2 is quite extraordinary. He says, Is not her sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. The lack of value for women expressed by the men in Judges, both Jew and Gentile, is nothing short of appalling. And if you've yet read the rest of this book, then you already know that it's only going to get worse, a lot worse. Well, Samson responds by saying in verse 3, this time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. I think that's so interesting that he says it that way. First of all, because he implies, I think, that perhaps he wasn't so innocent the last time that he killed some of these Philistines. And second, 
we see that his ultimate motivation is once again pretty clear. It's about revenge. And what he does next makes our jaws drop. Something he was only able to do through the empowerment of the Lord, the manager of all of these activities. Verse 4 of chapter 15, Samson went and caught 300 foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the, here's the wheat harvest part, into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and the standing grain as well as the olive orchards. I remember picturing this as a little boy. Foxes linked together with a torch running around. And even today, the picture of that is just sheerly amazing. Well, the Philistines, they respond in verse 6. It says, The Philistines said, Who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to a companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. They blamed Samson's wife and her father, and they burned them with fire, which is yet another terrible irony in this book. The very thing she was trying to avoid is the thing that came upon her and her dad. And Samson responds to this with even more angry vengeance. Verse 7, I swear I will be avenged on you. He is still not thinking about God or his people. He's not even, I don't think, thinking about his wife or her father. He's focused on getting revenge for himself. And in verse 8, he struck them with a great blow. It says, hip and thigh he beat them. Hip and thigh is a wrestling idiom. It means total victory. He mastered them from head to toe. A victory he accomplished only through the onrush of the Spirit of God. Now, number five, he revealed the storm cloud of Samson. He revealed his arrogance. In verses 8 through 9, Samson fled to a cave, and the Philistines, they came after him. And this brought great trauma to the people of Judah, for the Philistines had crossed the border, and they now presented a very real and present threat to them and their livelihood. And instead of honoring the command of God to root out these idol worshipers, these Israelites reacted instead in fear, and they decided to do the Philistines' bidding. Consider, please, these Israelites for a moment. They would not attack their enemies as God had commanded them to do. And they would not follow or even protect or hide the deliverer that God had raised them up to save. Even though this same God had previously defeated the great armies of Midian through 300 men by a fearful little guy named Gideon. It appears they were so content to live under the thumb of foreign oppression that they had no interest in calling out to God for help. Dale Ralph Davis again says of them, Israel is a people who can forsake Yahweh instantly, but who would not think of being faithless to the Philistines. These were still Israelites, but they might as well have been Philistines. These were God's people, 
but they were almost, incom- almost entirely and completely pagan. These 3,000 men from Judah in verse 11, they come to Samson and they say, Do you not know that the Philistines are over us? What then is this that you have done for us? In other words, they say to him, Samson, what are you doing? You're going to get us killed by the Philistines. This seems an awful lot like frightful rabbit and gloomy Eeyore coming to an overly exuberant tigger and saying, Calm down, you're going to get us in trouble. They don't even think to look up through the clouds. And Samson's response reveals what's still happening in his heart. In verse 11, he says, As they did to me, so I have done to them. Do you catch the heart of this guy? Do you see how often it can look like yours? For Samson, it's still all about Samson as his narcissism is on clear display. Well, after they affirmed that they would not kill Samson themselves, they, he went with them back to the Philistines. And verse 13 says that they bound him, note carefully, with two new ropes. So that sets the stage. That builds the anticipation here. Two new ropes. Ropes, ones that would have been exceedingly strong and capable of confining even the strongest man and binding him. And when they get to the Philistines, as his enemies are shouting at him, verse 14 shows us another glimpse up through the sky. Verse 14 says, When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey. And he put out his hand and he took it. And with it he struck 1,000 men. The author is careful to note that the jawbone of this donkey was a fresh jawbone. So it would have still had teeth and meat on it. Samson is no longer eating from a carcass. He is now using a dead carcass for a weapon. I hope the irony of this is becoming clear. And after he kills 1,000 of Israel's enemies, hear what he has to say in verse 16. Samson says, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. The Hebrew words for donkey and heaps are quite similar, causing an interesting connection and rhyme in his little poem here. But what's really interesting is the last line of his poem, I struck down a thousand men. If you recall chapter 5, we see Deborah and Barak, they write a song to the Lord, and they praise God ultimately for what he had accomplished through them. Well, here in Samson's song, there is no mention of the Lord. When it comes to his public words before the people of Israel, the opportunity to preach and proclaim the goodness of the God of all glory, he decides to say, it's about me. He only talks about himself. Now, see the end. Number six, he looked to God only for what he could get from God. He won a big battle. He exerted himself perhaps like never before, and he was extremely thirsty, as you can imagine. So he called upon the Lord in verse 18, and he says, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. So 
So far, that's pretty good. For the first time in the entire Samson narrative, he is acknowledging how all of this came about, that God granted this great salvation. Even Samson understood the source of all sovereign wisdom and power. But the last part of his prayer leaves us scratching our heads. He says, Shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? His ultimate focus is on his physical need, and he wants God to meet that need. And now, here at the end, all of a sudden, he expresses this concern about the uncircumcised Philistines. The guy who wanted to marry one of them against God's law was now pleading with God to save him from their hands. He appears to have been a man who wanted what God could give him but had no desire to live for God with his life. And honestly, when I see this, to me it sounds an awful lot like a lot of merely professing Christians in our day who talk a lot about faith but demonstrate no real repentance in their lives. But look what God graciously did. In verse 19, he split open a hollow in a rock and he brought water out for this thirsty, rebellious Nazarite. We see the character of God on display even as the clouds pull back and he reveals what he's been doing. My friends, see the gracious God behind the scenes. This was all from the Lord. He sought an opportunity against the Philistines, and he used his servant to bring about a deliverance from them. His spirit intervened again and again to rush upon his servant and give him the necessary strength. And in spite of all of his self-centeredness and fleshly living, Samson himself was preserved by the Lord through miraculous means. The clouds were dark and foreboding, but God, he peeled them back to show us, even today, his good hand. And my friends, I believe this compels us to look upward. The gracious God is working behind the scenes today. He is working behind the scenes to redeem lawbreakers, people with hearts like Samson and Joe. And you, in Galatians chapter 4, listen to this, verses 4 and 5, the Apostle Paul writes that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Listen to that again. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. When the days that God had already determined became full, when God's plan that was decided beforehand was ready to come about, at that full, perfect, complete time that God ordained, he sent forth his son. And Paul goes on to say, he was born of a woman. He was born under the law. Why? Verse 5 tells us to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. God, in his perfect plan, ordained the day, the moment, the time for his son to come and be the redeemer of all of us lawbreakers. 
that we might receive not just forgiveness where we avoid his punishment but are left off to the side, but no, we are redeemed and brought near as we are adopted as sons and daughters of the king. Some of you have not had good dads. Some of you have had awful moms. But I tell you, my friends, there was a God above who sent his one and only son to redeem you, to free you from your sins and all of its guilt and all of its consequences and all of its power so that you might become a son of the God of heaven, that you might be a daughter of the king. He has done this and he's planned it all. The clouds fully parted back as all of his wrath was upon his son. And the stone rolled back as this glorious sun comes forth. Secondly, this God is working everything behind the scenes for the ultimate good of his people. I'll say it clearly. He's working everything behind the scenes for the ultimate good of whom? His people. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, the Apostle Paul says, We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. God has called these people according to his purpose. And behind the scenes of our lives, even though we can't see it while we suffer, if we know Jesus, if we have a love for God and relish in the love of God towards us, if that's us, no matter what the dark circumstances may be, this verse tells us very clearly that God is causing all these things to work together for our good. It doesn't mean it feels good. It doesn't mean we like it. It doesn't mean that it seems very good in the moment. But when the good we're talking about is our ultimate holiness before God, when the good that we're talking about is our ultimate dependence upon God, when the good that we're talking about is our ultimate glorification where we stand before God, he works even your pain for good. And he does all of this working behind the scenes, which gives us such hope that when the times get bleak, we can remember that even the bleakness is something he's using to make us like himself. Third, God is working behind the scenes to equip his people for God-pleasing holiness. Paul writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And if we have more time, I would flesh this out. What I believe he means by that is that you were to take the salvation that you have in Christ and you were to manifest that, sta- that, that salvation out throughout the entirety of your life. It's to become complete as you begin to walk in holiness before God. He tells us that we are to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. But then he says this in the next verse. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I have not seen the face of God. I have not had the ability to see Jesus up through the clouds. But I do know that Jesus Christ is 
daily working in my life to will and to work for his good pleasure. That even as I strive to try to please him, God is working through me to please him. I can't see it. I just have to trust that above the clouds of all of my sin and failure, all of the times when I try but don't succeed, that up above the clouds, God's working in me. He's doing that. So, when I consider this text, I have prayed that it would do two things in your lives. I prayed this week, throughout it, I prayed this morning, I prayed while Nolan was reading the scripture that he would do these two things. Number one, that this would bring supreme comfort and motivation for those of us who can say, I am a child of this God. That it would warm our hearts with the joy of his spirit and that it would motivate us to go forth, go forth as sons and daughters of this king. And I have prayed that it would present a clear call to everyone else who may be here today that they might cry out, I need to be a child of this God. And the good news for all of you who say that is the offer is there. You can believe and be saved. And for all of us we can, who know Christ, we can look to him in faith and we can say that don't, though we don't usually see a lot of the things that he's doing, we can trust in the fact that he is doing and we can recognize that behind all of the bleakness there stands the sovereign Lord who cares for his people and is bringing about things that are good. Let's pray. Lord, we so thank you for this good opportunity to again open up your word. We thank you for the truth that it gives us, Lord. And we thank you for the failure of Samson that we might look to a better Samson, a better deliverer who has come for us. We thank you, Father, that as we identify with him, with all of his self-centeredness, Lord, that we can also look to your son who stands above. As we go to the table now, Father, I pray that we would recognize that our, our ability to be able to come to you and be adopted and be redeemed came with a great price. That it came, Lord, because the blood of your own son Jesus was shed for us, even as his body was also broken us for us, Lord, to pay for our sins. Lord, this table demonstrates, it, might, it calls us to remember the very ultimate reason for why we have hope as Christians. is to help us to see this. Help us to humbly repent and walk away from sins and look to the message of this, Lord, that you might be praised. In Christ's name.